This episode contains distressing themes and is intended for mature audiences only. Listener discretion is advised. On this episode of They Walk Among America, Betty Jean Gooch was just beginning her shift as the special collections librarian at the Transylvania University Library in Lexington, Kentucky, on the 7th of December, 2004. The Transylvania University Library is known as the scholarly heart of Transylvania's campus, and, at any given day of the week, it's teeming with people. Betty had been working at the library since 1994. It was a job that she loved, and she found herself lucky to hold such a role. That morning, Betty received a phone call at the library. The man on the other end of the line identified himself as Walter Beckman, an out-of-town businessman. He requested an appointment at the Special Collections Library to view several rare books, including Origin of the Species, Illuminated Manuscripts, and the John James Audubon Collection. Betty agreed, and she told Mr. Beckman to come to the library at 2 p.m. on the 16th of December, 2004, and she would show him the aforementioned books. As the Special Collections Librarian, this was Betty's job. Hello, listeners. I'm your host, Nina Instead, and welcome to episode 37 of They Walk Among America, a joint production between the Law & Crime Podcast Network and They Walk Among Us, the award-winning true crime podcast. Transylvania University Library was the beneficiary of prominent book collectors, and every now and then, somebody would call or email Betty and request to see the books. Since the books were rare and worth millions of dollars, they needed to be held somewhere safe. They were kept inside a vault on the second floor of the library, and you needed to know the code to gain entry. A couple of days before Betty chatted with Mr. Beckman, Christie's Auction House in New York City received an email from a man who identified himself as Walter Beckman. He told them that he was in possession of some rare books that were worth millions, but he needed to get them appraised before he could sell them. He inquired about setting up a meeting for later in October. Back at the library, after Betty set up the meeting with Mr. Beckman, she continued with her daily duties, thinking nothing of the phone call. Meanwhile, Christie's Auction House in New York received another email from Mr. Beckman. The email read, I have a first edition Origin of the Species by Charles Darwin, manuscripts that date back to the 1500s, and a collection of John James Audubon's Quadrupeds and Birds of America. I know that these books are worth a lot. A couple of days after Betty spoke with Mr. Beckman, she received another email from him confirming their appointment. In regards to the books he wanted to view, he said he was particularly interested in the famous Audubon books, the first edition, and yes, that's how he said it, edition, Darwin, and any of the illuminated manuscripts. Then, on the 13th of December, Betty received another phone call from Mr. Beckman. Something had come up. He said and asked if he could change the date of the meeting to the 16th of December at 3.30 p.m. Betty agreed. On the afternoon of the 16th of December, Susan Brown, the director of the library, was carrying out her daily tasks when she spotted two men enter the library. They were wearing white wigs, makeup, and hats. 
It was just college friends playing some kind of lighthearted prank, Susan thought. Betty was nearby, and they rolled their eyes at one another. It wasn't unheard of for college pranks to be carried out at the library. It was in the heart of the university's campus, after all. The group caused no trouble, and they quickly left the library without doing anything silly. 3.30 p.m. rolled around, and Mr. Beckman still hadn't arrived. Half an hour later, Betty's phone rang. It was Mr. Beckman. He apologized and explained that he was out of town for work and would need to reschedule their appointment. Betty agreed, and the appointment was scheduled for the next morning, Friday the 17th, at 11 a.m. The following morning started like any regular day for Betty. When she arrived at the library, she set out some of the rare books that Mr. Beckman wanted to view in the Special Collections Library. Mr. Beckman arrived shortly after 11 a.m. Betty was somewhat surprised when she saw him. When she spoke with Mr. Beckman on the phone, she had envisioned him as much older. Standing before her, she could see that he was much younger. He also wasn't dressed for the occasion. He was wearing an unseasonably heavy coat, as well as gloves and a hat. When Betty had chatted with Mr. Beckman on the phone, he had come across as charismatic and talkative. In person, he appeared distracted and nervous. Betty and Mr. Beckman chatted for several minutes before the businessman inquired as to whether his friend could join them. He, too, was interested in having a peruse through the rare books. Betty agreed, and Mr. Beckman stepped away momentarily to phone the friend. He must have been nearby, because within one minute, he arrived at the library. Much like Mr. Beckman, his friend was wearing a thick coat. When he got closer, Betty noticed that he had a bandage on his face and glasses which concealed some of his face. Betty handed Mr. Beckman and his friend the library guest registry to sign in, which was required to view the rare books. They both scribbled their names and handed the guest registry back. Betty glanced down, and while she could read Mr. Beckman's name, the friend's writing was so illegible that she needed to ask him his name. John, he replied. Betty then led the two men to the Special Collections Library, which sits above the first floor of the library in a glassed-in room that always remains locked. The Special Collections Library has its own stairway and is hidden away from the rest of the library. She unlocked the door and she walked in the direction of the rare books she had laid out in anticipation. The two men followed. They were quiet as Betty chatted about the manuscripts and sketchings by naturalist John James Audubon. Seconds later, Betty was pushed to the ground. Before she even had a chance to react, she felt a tingling sensation. Looking down, she could see that Mr. Beckman was armed with a pen-type stun gun, and he was pushing it into her arm. Betty screamed as loud as she possibly could, but she knew that no one would be able to hear her. She had closed the vault door behind her, and it was soundproof. Grab her arms, she heard Mr. Beckman shout. John complied, grabbing Betty by both arms. The tingling sensation continued, and Betty could hear an electric humming and popping sound. She knew that Mr. Beckman and John were zapping her with a stun gun, but she refused to give in. As Betty struggled, Mr. Beckman shouted, Betty, if you just keep on struggling, it will only hurt more. Do you want it to hurt more? The threat seemingly worked, and Betty submitted. What was particularly unnerving to Betty was the calm nature of Mr. Beckman and John. Betty felt uneasy that Mr. Beckman had referred to her by her first name, and in such a casual manner. 
After giving in, Mr. Beckman and John bound Betty by her hands and feet with plastic zip ties. Once immobilized, Mr. Beckman removed her glasses and covered her eyes with a wool cap. He attempted to put duct tape over her mouth, but it wouldn't stick. Betty was terrified, but she tried to remain as calm as possible. Heart disease ran in Betty's family, and she had an intense fear that if she did not calm down, she would have a heart attack. She didn't want to die alone in the library. She recalled, I just remember thinking, I have to calm myself down. I just have to get through this. She could hear the men shuffling around the special collections library, but she could not see what they were doing. But since she had set out a handful of rare books, worth hundreds of thousands of dollars, she had an idea. Mr. Beckman and John were only there for a couple of minutes, after which Betty could hear them hastily moving towards the elevator. While this was taking place in the Special Collections Library, head librarian Susan Brown was on the main floor. As she carried out her daily duties, she was disturbed by the ding of the elevator doors opening. When she glanced up to see who it was, she was startled to see two unknown men. They were wearing winter coats, gloves, and were carrying something wrapped up in a pink bedsheet. Susan was more than suspicious. She began strutting towards the elevator to inquire who the men were and what they were doing. The two men began bashing on the elevator button. Susan picked up speed, but before she reached the elevator, the doors closed and the elevator moved down. Susan was troubled by the scenario and ran upstairs to the Special Collections Library in search of Betty. She knew that Betty had an appointment that morning to show somebody some rare books. Back upstairs, Betty had managed to crawl into her office and towards the phone. As she attempted to dial somebody to alert them, her hands were shaking so badly that she struggled to tap the numbers. She could hear Susan running up the stairs, and she shouted, Susan, they're stealing the Autobahns, and they used a stun gun on me. Susan put her fear to the side and took off on foot, in hot pursuit of the two thieves. In a stairwell, she encountered Mr. Beckman and John, the two men she had earlier seen in the elevator. They attempted to bust open an emergency exit. Susan confronted the two men, who were taken aback by both her arrival and her aggression. Startled, Mr. Beckman and John dropped two volumes of the Birds of North America four-volume set, a collector's item worth millions. Before Susan could reach the two men, they succeeded in opening the emergency exit and bounded outside, carrying the pink sheet containing their loot with them. By now, it was apparent to the staff that Mr. Beckman and John had stolen the rare books that Betty had set out for them to view. Susan took off after them. She shouted to other members of the staff who joined the pursuit. Mr. Beckman and John rounded the corner outside the library and jumped into a van that was waiting. They took off at a high rate of speed, but not before Susan lifted out her key and scratched the van, hoping that it could assist with identification later down the line. The librarians then returned to the scene of the crime. In the stairwell, they picked up the two discarded volumes of the Birds of North America four-volume set and put them back in their proper places. Then, they called 911 to report that they had been robbed. As police were dispatched to the library, the librarians were assessing what had been stolen from the Special Collections Library. They discovered that the two men had taken off with five objects of cultural heritage, some of which contained multiple volumes or pieces. They included Hortus Sanitatus, 
Ortus Santatus Translate de Latin and Francois, Paris, circa 1500. Two volumes, with four full-page woodcuts and approximately 450 woodcut illustrations in the text. Estimated value, $450,000. Two, pencil drawings, believed to have been commissioned for the Birds of America, second octavo edition, New York and Philadelphia, circa 1855. Twenty of a 21-piece collection. One drawing was on display and hence not with the collection at the time of the robbery. Estimated value, $50,000. Three, a synopsis of the birds of North America by John James Audubon, New York, 1839. Eight volumes, mostly unopened, autographed by John James Audubon himself as a gift to a friend. Estimated value, $10,000. Four, On the Origin of Species by Means of Natural Selection by Charles Darwin, London, 1859. First edition, rebound. Estimated value, $25,000. 5. Illuminated Manuscript, Devotional Calendar, England, circa 1425. 60 leaves, one full-page miniature, and elaborate initials and illuminations throughout. Estimated value, $200,000. The brazen crime was unlike anything investigators in the affluent town had ever seen before. Library thefts are inevitable, and preventing such thefts was something that librarians had been wrestling with for years. It was tough to find a balance between protecting precious materials and allowing guests to view the materials. Some collections of rare books and materials are so large that it can be almost impossible for inventory to be taken. In instances where a collection is so large, something could be missing and the library would never even notice. In fact, this wasn't the first time a theft had occurred at Transylvania University Library. Back in May of 1994, Eugene C. Zolman was charged with stealing several Jefferson Davis documents from the library. It had taken librarians 14 years to even notice that the documents were missing because the letters had not been inventoried since 1968 when they were initially cataloged. Zolman was caught when a Jefferson Davis expert saw the documents on an auction house website and recognized them as coming from the Transylvania University Library. Police then identified Zolman as the thief by reviewing the sign-in sheets from the library from between 1981 to 2007. Out of the 110 requests made to view the Jefferson Davis documents, less than 30 were made in person. Zolman had come to view the documents four times in May of 1994. Back to present day, local, state, and federal agencies were swarming the small campus that afternoon, searching for the thieves. At the scene of the crime, they got their first lead immediately. Since Mr. Beckman had liaised with Betty via email, they already had his email address, beckmanwalter at yahoo.com. They were quickly able to establish that this same email address had been used to interact with Christie's Auction House in New York. Further investigation revealed that the emails from Mr. Beckman were sent from a computer lab at the University of Kentucky. Investigators descended on the university and seized the computer. Investigators also made contact with Christie's Auction House. It was evident that the thieves were planning on selling the rare books at the auction house. Investigators were informed by a member of staff at the auction house, Melanie Halloran, 
that she had met with two men who identified themselves as Mr. Stevens and Mr. Williams, representatives of Mr. Beckman. They had also given her a phone number. Melanie provided investigators with the phone number, while officials at Christie's auction house provided them with a CD containing footage of the two men entering the auction house and meeting with Melanie. Investigators now had surveillance footage of the two men involved in the heist and a phone number. They traced the phone number to an account which was owned by a man named Gary Reinhard. When an officer called the phone number, it went straight to voicemail. This is Spence. Leave a message, the recording said. Investigators uncovered that Gary had a 24-year-old son named Spencer Reinhard. When investigators googled the name, they found a photograph of Reinhard from the Lexington Herald-Leader. He looked exactly like Mr. Stevens, the man who spoke with Melanie at Christie's auction house. Investigators had identified a potential suspect, but there were at least another three, the other man in the library and the getaway driver. Investigators reviewed the footage at Christie's auction house again. They knew that one of the men was Reinhard, but who was the other man? Detective Pat Murray had a son around the same age as Spencer Reinhard. He wondered if his son could identify the man in the footage. When he showed his son the surveillance footage, he recognized the other man with Reinhard immediately. It was 20-year-old Warren Lipka, one of Reinhardt's best friends. At around 6 a.m. on the 11th of February, 2005, police officers and FBI agents surrounded a yellow brick home in Beaumont, near the University of Kentucky. It was around dawn when they broke down the front door of the two-bedroom home with a battering ram. They hurled in stun grenades, hoping to get the upper hand on whoever was inside. When the FBI gained entry, they were met by a man standing at the top of the stairs, pointing a handgun directly at them. The FBI shouted, police, police, drop the gun. The man complied, dropping the gun and placing his hands on the top of his head. The man was 20-year-old Eric Borsuk. He thought they were being robbed. Inside the home, the FBI found Lipka and a third man, 20-year-old Charles Allen III. Lipka had been identified as one of the thieves, and as he was arrested, his two roommates, Borsuk and Allen, were brought to the police station for questioning. Meanwhile, another raid was being carried out at Reinhardt's dormitory. He was a student at Transylvania University. He was arrested without incident and brought down to the police station. Back at the home in Beaumont, the FBI were conducting a sweep. They still needed to find the stolen items. In the basement, they came across a carefully concealed door. They illuminated the dimly lit room with their torches. Stashed away inside the concealed room, they found all of the items that had been stolen from the library. Upstairs, they found three stun guns and notes which contained plans of the book heist. They knew that they had the right people, but now it needed to be determined exactly who was involved and what their role was. With the four men down at the police station in separate interrogation rooms, they were presented with the evidence found at the home. Reinhard, Lipka, and Allen all admitted that they participated in the book heist. As for Borsuk, he was much harder to crack, and initially denied any involvement before conceding that he too had been involved. Reinhard, Lipka, Allen, and Borsuk had all grown up in Lexington, where they attended local high schools, played football, and then stayed in town for college. Reinhard was a sophomore at Transylvania University where he was studying art. 
He was a keen and talented painter, but he had ambitions to one day enter a graphic design career. Lipka was a football scholar at the University of Kentucky and had vague plans of getting into politics once he graduated. Borsuk was also enrolled at the University of Kentucky where he was studying accounting. Ironically, he hoped to one day join the FBI. As for Allen, he was majoring in business at the University of Kentucky. Borsuk and Allen had been taking a semester off while Lipka had stopped attending classes because of financial problems. Lipka, Borsuk, and Allen had been lifelong friends, attending Lexington Catholic together, and then living together after graduation in 2003. The home that the three men lived in on Beaumont Avenue was owned by Allen and his parents. It was the same home where they were arrested. Reinhardt had been welcomed into the fold by Lipka, who he had played soccer with for many years. The arrests sent shockwaves across the college city and further afield. The four suspects were relatively privileged, upper-middle-class, hard-working college students. They were not your usual suspects, and nobody within their friend circle could reconcile the men they had known with the men who now stood accused of such a brazen crime. When the heist was reported in the media, many had envisioned the thieves as career criminals, not young men in the prime of their lives. In announcing the arrests, FBI spokesman David Byer said, It is very striking to me that these gentlemen, young, very early in their lives, afforded virtually every opportunity, afforded the best education that our community can provide, would make these decisions that are now going to result in them being held accountable in the federal system. The following day, Reinhard, Lipka, Allen, and Borsuk were released from jail pending trial. None of them were required to post bail. Federal Magistrate Judge J. Gregory Wyram released them on the condition they stay with their parents. Lipka was also placed on house arrest. The investigation was, essentially, still in its infancy, but by now, all four men had confessed to their role in the heist. They revealed that the planning for the heist had begun in January of 2004. For a while, Reinhard, Lipka, Allen, and Borsuk had all been feeling disenchanted with the mundane, humdrum routine of their lives. They were searching for something to escape the suburban lifestyles they had all become accustomed to. Borsuk later commented, We were seemingly happy kids, but we obviously weren't. We were very lost, searching in all the wrong places. Lipka in particular was plagued by money issues, and his life had little purpose or direction. In the summer before the heist, he had been kicked out of his family home. He had worked for some time at Ramsey's on East High Street, but he was forced to quit due to a hand injury. Due to lack of money, he stopped attending classes at the University of Kentucky, and just the day before he was arrested, he was caught shoplifting a frozen dinner at a Kroger store on Euclid Avenue. As for his parents, they were in a similar predicament. They had been going through a particularly messy divorce, and the previous fall, they filed for bankruptcy. Their money woes had been in part because of horse gambling debts accrued by Lipka's father. Before planning the heist, Lipka and Borsuk had teamed up to sell fake IDs to their peers in the University of Kentucky, but the money they collected was a paltry amount, at least to them. They wanted more. Reinhard, too, was struggling financially. While he didn't have a steady job, he did make ends meet by selling paintings, but still, it wasn't enough. Their situation could not have been further away from Allen's situation. 
He co-owned CTA Investments with his parents and also worked for his father's real estate company. More than anything, the men wanted a story to tell. They desired for a wild experience that would bound them all together forever. This experience would come to fruition in January of 2004, when Reinhard visited the Transylvania University Library, where a librarian made him aware of the special collections. The librarian told Reinhard that if he wanted to view the books, she could show him. She made a grave mistake when she mentioned how one set of the rare books had sold for around $12 million. When Reinhard heard the massive figure, something in his imagination sparked. Reinhard went home that afternoon and the words of the librarian played on repeat in his head. He met Lipka the next day. The two men sat and smoked marijuana in his car as Reinhard told Lipka, I just took a tour in that library, and there's shit sitting there you wouldn't believe. They said that this set, Birds of America, sold for $12 million. Lipka said in disbelief, $12 million? Just sitting there? They got security around that? Reinhard wasn't sure, so they decided to scope out the library and examine the layout. It quickly became apparent to the two men that there was no security at the library. It would be the perfect victimless crime, they thought. Get in, get the books, and then sell them for millions. There was a catch, though. They still needed to figure out how they could sell the books if they managed to steal them. The planning continued. Lipka had known some underworld people from his fake ID racket. One of these underworld friends put him in contact with somebody from New York City, a man who only identified himself as Barry. Lipka and Reinhard traveled 700 miles to New York to meet up with Barry. The older man was immediately put off by Lipka and Reinhard's youth. Lipka recalled the meeting. It was hard for us. We weren't, like, hardened criminals. So we kind of had to really put up a front. Barry asked Lipka and Reinhard for $500, which they handed over. In exchange, he handed them an email address. He told them that when emailing, use the pseudonym Terry. Once back in Lexington, Lipka and Reinhard shot off an email to the address, signing off with the name Terry. They said that they had rare books they wanted to sell. Around a week later, they received a reply. They were told that if they had something to sell, they needed to meet a man in Amsterdam, which is a major hub for stolen art. By March of 2004, the wheels were already in motion for the heist, and Lipka and Reinhard had enlisted Borsuk and Allen to help. As Borsuk later said to the Today Show, a group mind sort of evolved, and I don't think any of us ever thought it was actually going to happen. We kept pushing the fantasy along a little further, a little further, until suddenly you're at the door and you're doing it. At first, Alan was against the idea. He didn't need the money. But eventually, the allure of millions of dollars drew him in. Lipka flew to Amsterdam as arranged. He met four men at a local cafe and introduced himself as Terry. Much like beforehand, the men were put off by Lipka's young age. Nevertheless, they said they would be interested in purchasing the rare books, but first, they needed to be appraised by a major auction house. Once Lipka returned home, he told Reinhard, Allen, and Borsuk, I've talked to these guys. I've met with them. They think we have the books. Now the hard part. We have to steal them. To prepare for the heist, the five men watched Kubrick's The Killing and Reservoir Dogs. Borrowing color-coded pseudonyms from Reservoir Dogs, Mr. Green, 
Mr. Yellow, Mr. Black, and Mr. Pink, the four men rehearsed their roles, staked out locations, and timed the getaway. They ordered four stun guns over the internet and got their hands on some zip ties, duct tape, and a wool cap. Borsuk recollected, It was exciting, and we felt like we were alive. I think probably for the first time in our lives. By December, the plan was ready to be executed. They had created the phony identity of Walter Beckman and set up meetings with Betty at Transylvania University Library and with Charlie's Auction House in New York. The day before the heist, Lipka and Borsuk entered the library. This was the initial date they had made the appointment with Betty. The two men were disguised as old men, with makeup, wigs, hats, and costumes. When they entered, they were spotted by the librarian, Susan Brown, who simply assumed it was some kind of college prank. They noticed that Susan was with Betty. They had hoped that Betty would be alone. As they cased the library, they were stared at by numerous students who were captivated by their ludicrous disguises. Their cover was blown. Instead of proceeding with the heist, Lipka and Borsik left the library empty-handed and decided to try again the next day. Once home, Lipka called Betty to reschedule their meeting for the next day. The following morning, Alan showed up at his parents' house to borrow their silver Dodge Caravan. He was to be the getaway driver. Lipka and Borsuk climbed into the van and Alan dropped them off outside the library. This time, they had decided not to wear the garish disguises. In preparation for the heist, they brought along a pink bedsheet which they would use to help them carry the books from the library to the getaway van. As for Reinhard, he stood watch. Since he was a student at Transylvania University, he risked being identified if he entered the library. Lipka entered the library alone, made contact with Betty, and then called Borsik, telling him to follow. They both signed into the library and followed Betty upstairs to the Special Collections Library. The plan was for Lipka and Borsik to bring Betty down hard and fast once they entered the Special Collections Library, so that she would be a non-factor throughout the operation. This part of the plan went down without a hitch. Once Betty was immobilized, Lipka and Borsuk laid out the pink bedsheet and began piling in the books. They anticipated that the books would be heavy, but they were not quite prepared for just how heavy they actually were. The Birds of America volumes alone were four feet long, the size of a small table. After bundling the books into the bedsheet, Lipka and Borsuk struggled to lift it up. They removed two of the Birds of North America volumes and left them in the Special Collections Library. These books alone would have sold for around $12 million. Lipka and Borsuk had planned on taking the employee-only elevator to the ground floor and then making their escape through the emergency exit. Alan would be waiting near the emergency exit in a van, which they had dubbed GTAV, aka the Get To and Away Vehicle. Reinhard would be standing across the street, keeping a watchful eye over the library. After bundling as much loot into the pink sheet as they could carry, Lipka and Borsuk made their way to the elevator. It took them down to the basement, but they couldn't find the fire exit. They returned to the elevator and accidentally stopped on the main floor where they were spotted by the librarian, Susan. Instead of trying to escape via the front door, they bashed the elevator button to take them back down to the basement. They realized that the only way to exit would be via the main floor, so they once again took the elevator up and carted the books to a back stairwell which led to another exit. While attempting to escape the library, they were confronted by Susan in the back stairwell. 
As they struggled for breath, their arms gave out due to the heavy weight of the loot, dropping two more volumes from the birds of North America. Outside, Alan was waiting in the van, completely unaware that the plan was falling to pieces. His heart rate was going a million miles a minute as he saw Lipka and Borsik burst out of the back door and come sprinting towards him. They were being closely followed by several librarians. Alan recalled, they were 20 steps ahead of the librarian. He put the van in reverse and pushed his foot to the pedal, backing up the van to meet Lipka and Alan. They flung open the door, jumped in, and the van screeched off, leaving the librarians in its wake. By this point, Reinhardt had left his vantage point and ran back to the campus. Several blocks away, Alan pulled over the van and let Lipka and Borsik out. They knew that the van was hot, and as soon as the heist was reported to police, they would be searching for it. He dropped the van back to his parents' home and then returned to collect Lipka and Borsuk in a different car. The three men drove home and stashed the stolen goods in the basement of the home in Beaumont. In the basement, there was a semi-hidden room which had been used by the men to grow marijuana. It was the perfect spot to hide the books. With their loot safely stored away, they gathered up evidence relating to their crime, planning documents, disguises, the stun pen used to subdue Betty, and disposed of these items in a dumpster just a stone's throw away from the home. The wheels were now in motion for the second part of the elaborate plan, to sell the books and make millions. The four men told their families that over Christmas break, they were going on a ski trip. In reality, they drove to New York for their appointment with Christie's Auction House. While they had initially planned on having Christie's Auction House appraise the items so they could be sold to the buyer in Amsterdam, the plan had drastically changed. When the four men contacted the buyer, they were told he was no longer interested because the men had failed to steal the four volumes of the birds of North America. Not deterred, the men continued in their plan, instead hoping that Christie's auction house would sell them for them. On the 21st of December, Lipka and Reinhard met with Christie's auction house representative, Melanie Halloran. They identified themselves as Mr. Stevens and Mr. Williams, representatives of Walter Beckman. They described Mr. Beckman as a very private individual who was interested in selling some rare books. Lipka was carrying a red briefcase which contained the items of interest. Melanie reviewed the books and then agreed that Christie's auction house would be interested in selling them for Mr. Beckman. Reinhardt gave Melanie his cell phone number and the two men returned home with the books. Melanie had a strange feeling about the two men that she had just met. There was something suspicious about them and she couldn't quite put her finger on it. She told her supervisor, Tom Leckie, about her feelings, and it was decided they would not proceed with the auction. Her suspicions would be confirmed a couple of days later when the FBI contacted Christie's auction house, asking about the emails from Mr. Beckman. Despite the months of planning, the heist had quickly begun to unravel. Christie's auction house provided investigators with Reinhardt's phone number and with the surveillance footage of the two men. They were all arrested shortly thereafter. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. 
With Reinhard, Lipka, Allen, and Borsuk behind bars, a federal grand jury indicted them on six counts, conspiracy to commit robbery, aiding and abetting robbery, conspiracy to commit offenses against the United States, aiding and abetting the theft of objects of cultural heritage, and aiding and abetting transportation of stolen goods. They all pleaded not guilty to the charges against them, and a trial date was scheduled for May of 2005. If convicted, the four men were to be facing up to 75 years in prison, a $1.25 million fine, and 15 years of supervised release. The more valuable a stolen item, then the higher a potential sentence under federal sentencing guidelines. In fact, if the plan had succeeded, it would have been one of America's largest ever art heists. While awaiting trial, Allen and his attorney made contact with the government. Allen was wanting to offer information in exchange for a more lenient sentence. He said that the information he had could provide substantial assistance in the investigation of other unrelated offenses. Allen and his attorney met with the assistant United States attorney on the 8th of March, 2005. They sat down, and both parties signed a cooperation agreement, which characterized the meetings as off-the-record. The agreement also specified that Allen would receive direct-use immunity for information he provided to the prosecution, but it acknowledged that the government could pursue any leads that were given to them by Allen and could also cross-examine him. A second meeting was then set up. During this second meeting, the state prosecutors sat in. Allen and his attorney were satisfied with the immunity agreement, and Allen began to spill it all. He provided information regarding other illegal activities that he and his three co-defendants had taken part in, as well as other persons. This illegal activity included burglaries, gambling, blackmail, and drug dealings. After he disclosed his information, neither the United States attorney or the state prosecutors were interested. Essentially, the information was of no use to them, and the cooperation agreement fell to pieces. On the 21st of April, 2005, all four men appeared in court and changed their pleas from not guilty to guilty. There were talks of a plea agreement, but the prosecution and defense could not come to an agreement. Defense attorney Adele Brown, who was representing Allen, said that the main sticking point was the amount of time that the men should serve. This was something defense attorney Fred Peters, who was representing Borsuk, agreed with. He said that his client had been offered a 10-year sentence, but he didn't feel that it fit the crime. As part of the guilty plea, Reinhardt, Lipka, Allen, and Borsuk needed to admit to U.S. District Court Judge Jennifer Kaufman what roles they played in the theft. She then released the four men on their own recognizance, and they were allowed to remain free until the sentencing phase. Outside of court, the media had gathered, and Lipka commented that he was looking forward to making amends for what I've done. The men went back to their prosaic lifestyles while their defense teams and the prosecution were working on what arguments to present during the sentencing phase. In mid-September, a series of paintings by Reinhard depicting the book heist was featured at Lexington's downtown gallery hop. One, which was called A Plan to Fail, showed Reinhardt and Lipka in black knit caps. Another, which was called Rise and Shine, showed Reinhardt's arrest. The gallery owner, Bobby Freisberg, said he wanted to sign a contract to represent Reinhardt despite the fact he knew he was involved in the infamous book heist. 
Two months later, Betty Gooch filed a lawsuit against Reinhard, Lipka, Borsuk, and Allen. She was seeking damages for physical, mental, and emotional suffering, medical expenses, and loss of wages. At a pre-sentencing hearing shortly thereafter, it was revealed by the district court judge that the assistant United States attorney had disclosed some of the information provided by Allen off the record to a probation officer. This probation officer had then in turn given this information to the district court judge. Allen and his attorney would seek to have the assistant United States attorney found in breach of the cooperation agreement. The district court found that the assistant United States attorney had dealt unfairly with Allen, simply by leading him to believe his information was of value, but found that they had not breached the agreement. As the lawsuit was meandering through the court system, it was time for the sentencing phase. On the 7th of December, the four men shuffled into court. Several witnesses testified, including Betty Gooch, who had not publicly spoken about her ordeal. She said that the attack with the stun gun had left her with a nickel-sized bruise, and she felt nauseous but opted out of seeking medical treatment. Just two weeks after the robbery, Betty returned to work as usual. She helped to fill out reports on the thieves and took a couple of days off work later that week. Later in the spring, she took three weeks off after being urged to by the administrator. While the bruise was long gone, Betty said that she still suffered emotionally and psychologically from the ordeal. Over the summer, she felt depressed and isolated and felt that the media and other people couldn't grasp how the heist had affected her. The sentencing decision was up to U.S. District Judge Jennifer Kaufman. Over the past year, dozens of librarians and curators from all across Kentucky had sent the judge letters, urging her to impose the toughest sentence possible on the four thieves. These letters were not only inspired by moral outrage, but also fear. The book heist at Transylvania University Library was not the first book heist, and it wasn't the last. All throughout libraries across the nation, security had been tightened exponentially, and policies had been amended to try and make book heists more difficult for would-be thieves. Transylvania University Library had increased their own security since the heist as well. Now, if somebody wants to view rare books, they need to provide identification and they need to explain why they want to see the items. Judge Kaufman had read all of the letters intently, and she took them into consideration as she debated what sentence would be appropriate. Ultimately, she sentenced Spencer Reinhard, Warren Lipka, Charles Allen, and Eric Borsuk to 87 months in prison. It was the minimum allowed by federal guidelines. An appeal was launched by the four men in the wake of their sentencing. They appealed a finding that a dangerous weapon had been used in the commission of the robbery. Under the federal sentencing guidelines, the use of a dangerous weapon during a robbery can increase the amount of time a defendant must serve. The appeal led to the four men facing longer sentences instead of shorter sentences. The U.S. Sixth Court of Appeals ruled that the judge had erred in sentencing them to seven years. Judge Alice Batchelder wrote that the judge had underestimated the value of the stolen items when determining the sentences. The higher value of over $1 million would increase their potential sentences instead of decreasing them. She said that the men should have been facing a minimum of nine years instead of seven. Reinhard, Lipka, Allen, and Borsuk appealed to the federal judge not to increase their sentence. They all said they had learned from their mistake and that they were sorry. 
Lipka told Judge Batchelder, Prison gives you a lot of time to think about what you've done and what you want to do with your life. Prison is a terrible place. Borsuk said that going to prison was the most beneficial experience of his life, adding, I think it kept me from going down a bad path. The judge decided that the original sentence would stand. The following year, the men would be embroiled in another legal battle, this time to keep the profits if they ever decided to sell the rights to their story. While their defense attorneys contended there were no plans to sell their story, they said that any prohibition to allow them to do so would violate the First Amendment. According to prosecutors, if the men did sell their story, then the profits should go to the victims or to pay legal bills. It would be up to a federal judge to decide, and they would decide that if the men wanted to sell their story, they could, and they would be allowed to keep the proceeds. Judge Kaufman said that she could not enter an order limiting their ability to profit from the sale of their story. She cited a 1991 U.S. Supreme Court decision that ruled against the government's attempts to regulate a defendant's ability to profit. And sell their story, the four men certainly did. In November of 2007, Vanity Fair ran a long-form piece titled Majoring in Crime, which detailed the heist from the perspective of the four men. The author of the piece, John Falk, referred to the heist as one part Ocean's Eleven, one part Harold and Kumar. He interviewed Reinhardt, Lipka, Allen, and Borsuk at length from behind bars. In the article, Borsuk said he would never return to life in the sterile, suburban world of the subdivisions. He lamented how, if they had pulled off the heist, they would have lived a crazy life thinking we were Ocean's Eleven types. Lipka said that the heist had made them all feel liberated, while Reinhard said he loved the fact that one of his paintings depicting the heist was saved on an FBI computer. Lipka commented, In a few years, we'll be released. We'll all be still young. We will be stronger, better, wiser for going through this together. The three of us, before, in college, growing up, we were being funneled into this mundane, nickel-and-dime existence. Now, we can't ever go back there. Even if we wanted to, they wouldn't let us. While behind bars, Alan dedicated his time to writing. He wanted to put his own experience down on paper. In November of 2010, he self-published his book, Mr. Pink, The Inside Story of the Transylvania Book Heist, which detailed the heist from his perspective. Two years after the book was published, Reinhard, Lipka, Allen, and Borsuk were released from prison. They all returned to the mundane, humdrum lives that they had desperately been attempting to escape from. In 2018, their audacious story was transformed into a movie. American Animals was directed by Bart Layton and was based on the Transylvania University Library heist. The movie starred Evan Peters as Lipka, Barry Keegan as Reinhard, Blake Jenner as Allen, and Jared Abramson as Borsuk. The film also contained a documentary element blended in with the drama, which featured the real Reinhard, Lipka, Allen, and Borsuk. At the heart of the movie was the quote, There are three sides to every story. Your side, my side, and the truth. As it transpired, the four men did not remember the same events exactly the same way, and the film told the perspective from each one. Bart Layton commented, You're left with a choice. Do I choose to fictionalize the one that is the most convenient, or do you make a virtue of the fact that you've got lots of unreliable narrators? Also, memory is pretty unreliable. I like the idea that it's hard to get a sense of what happened. There is no single truth. I think all of that presents opportunities for me as a filmmaker. 
to kind of shake up the idea of what a true story is, because we've all seen that based on a true story. In the end, the movie reveals a sad truth. The four men committed the heist simply to have a story to tell. It was never actually about the money. Today, Reinhard works as an artist. He painted the movie poster for the movie, American Animals. He sells his paintings online, and they cost several thousand dollars each. Lipka graduated from Temple University in 2018 with a master's degree in film studies. Allen describes himself as an author, public speaker, entrepreneur, and life coach. He uses his experiences to help at-risk youths and has since published three books. Borsuk went on to pen his own book on the heist in 2018 titled American Animals, A True Crime Memoir. As for Betty Jean Gooch, she struggled for years with the trauma from the heist. The trauma had not only come from the physical attack, but from the added violation of her workplace, somewhere that she regarded as a second home, and the violation of the relationship she previously had teaching students about books. In the aftermath of the heist, the focus was always on the four perpetrators as opposed to Betty, the main victim of what was often portrayed as a victimless crime. Betty returned to the Transylvania University Library, but her trust in people hit rock bottom. Months after the heist, she was making copies for somebody in the library and found herself planning her escape routes. The lawsuit she filed was settled out of court. Before the movie American Animals came out in cinemas, Betty watched it at home with the director. It had taken him two years to persuade her to be interviewed for the documentary part of the movie. After watching it, Betty felt a greater understanding of the motivations behind the heist. She said, What came across was a very human desire to leave a mark on the world. But these young men, they went about it all the wrong way. They came from good families. They wanted excitement. They wanted to be known for something big. The movie also helped Betty to truly begin her healing process, and she was able to reach a place where she believed that forgiveness would one day be possible. She said, It helped me close a door on it and have a more forgiving attitude. I think it was good for me to see the film. It was therapeutic. It's difficult to feel sympathy, but I'm working on it. This episode was researched and written by Emily G. Thompson, editing and scoring by Corey Hiltman, script editing, additional writing, and production direction by Rosanna and Benjamin Fitton. For more on our series and notes on this episode, please visit theywalkamonguspodcast.com. And for more on the Law & Crime Podcast Network, please visit lawandcrime.com slash podcasts. This has been They Walk Among America. We will be back in two weeks' time. Thank you for listening, and please be safe. Be safe.